Hello, and welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, October 28th, 2018, we're continuing our series titled Knowing Truth, The Letters of John. And in today's sermon, Christians in Sin, Pastor Bob Wade will be teaching from 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. We hope you enjoy. In a world of disagreements, large and small, I don't believe that you exist. Go think whatever you want. Go ahead. How can a good and powerful God allow innocent people to suffer unspeakable tragedies? But then there's all these questions, you know, about ethics and moral issues as well. And I would say, well, they're crazy for not testing what they think they believe. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not real. It's as real as what you see. And, and I begin with the assumption that God is love. And love is love is love is love. I think that the orthodox, historic Christian tradition is this vast, diverse conversation that's been going on for thousands of years. You know, the letter of 1 John um, reveals kind of a cultural and uh, teaching and communication differences between the Middle East and the Western world. Um, Hebrew is an Asian language. And at times that means that things are taught and communicated slightly differently. For example, truth often, you know, formed in a story or it's given in sort of a picturesque kind of a way you know, when Jesus is walking along and he's talking to his disciples about their worry and he just stops and he says, look, look at the flowers over here. They don't worry about stuff like that. That was pretty typical about how the way things were, were taught. And of course, if you go through the scriptures, you'll see that Jesus, you know, very often taught in parables. And so again, he was sort of telling a story to teach a truth and you have all the Old Testament stories. That's really different than how you and I were raised. You know, we were taught to learn and think very sequentially, you know, A leads to B, B leads to C, and so on. Hebrew thought was a little bit more circular. You might start off with the truth and kind of go away from it a little bit and then come back and reinforce it all over again because that was just the way they did that. And you'll see that in John and you'll see that as we continue on through the letter. Now, so far in the gospel, or excuse me, in the letter to 1 John here, we've talked about walking in the light, we've talked about the fact that Jesus is our advocate. In other words, he's our defense attorney by his blood. We talked about the fact that we're supposed to keep the commandments, that we're to keep ourselves from the Antichrist, those that would call him, you know, say that he's not the Messiah, that we're not to love the world. We've looked at the tests of faith. You know, there's a doctrinal test of faith that happens in there, basically says, who do you say Jesus is? That's an important test. And then there was a a moral test. Are you going to obey the things that the scriptures say? And then even beyond that, there was the relational test. Do you love the brothers and sisters in the Lord? This morning, though, we're going to be talking about those of us who claim to be Christians and sin. Now, why is sin such an issue? Well, sin hurts us. It separates friends. It destroys relationships. It leads to violence and addiction and abuse and ultimately death. It imprisons us in fear and jealousy, hatred, guilt. It's so ugly that God himself decided that he would send his one and only son to the earth to come and die to set us free from it. And yet, so many back in the very first century when John wrote this, 
And so many even today don't see sin as a big deal. It's just a part of life. And so John here in chapter three is going to write and be clear about us who call ourselves believers and people that are just talking a good game. So let's look together and you can follow along with me in 1 John chapter three. We'll read from verse four through verse 10. Verse four says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Boy, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Now he starts off here in verse four, and he's gonna give us sort of this definition. He's gonna tell us what sin is. Let me read four again. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, that's not the typical word that you and I would use for sin. If you've been around a church, you know, any time at all, you'll, you'll probably remember that most people would say sin. Well, that's missing the mark. It comes from Romans chapter 3, verse 23, which, which, which tells us there, it says, for all have sinned, all of harmatea, that's that word right there, and fall short of the glory of God. What that basically means is God in heaven is perfect. He sets a standard of heaven that is absolutely perfect, and not a single one of us, even if you try really hard, can meet that standard of perfection. It's impossible. That's what makes every single one of us fall short of the glory of God. We can't be that without him. That's not the word he uses here. The word John uses here in verse four is the Greek word anomia. It's, it means lawlessness. This is, the, this is doing something that God told you not to do, and you know it. It's a violation of his will. It's a willful rejection of his commands. This isn't a mistake. When it comes to harmatea, the word we looked at a minute ago, you know, that missing of the mark, you might even try to do good and make a mistake and not do good. That's not what this is talking about. This is not a mistake. This is not missing the mark. This is rebellion. You know, to me, this is the struggle that so many believers have. Do I do my will? Or do I do God's will? I mean, what's it going to be? I mean, honestly, most of the issues that you and I have as Christians are issues simply because of this. If you start thinking about certain things, like when it comes to my time, does time belong to me or does it belong to God? 
Or when it comes to priorities, you know, the way I set my priorities in my life, like what I'm going to give myself to and make the sacrifices for, is that God's time? Is it his job to set the priorities in my life or is it mine? When it comes to my lifestyle, how I live, do I do it by my rules or his rules? When it comes to my resources, is this my money? I mean, I'm the one that went to work, right? Or does everything, according to the scriptures, belong to God? This is where we get into issues. Now, John here is not talking about blowing it spiritually and making some kind of mistake. He's talking about a lifestyle that you and I choose that we know deep inside of our heart does not fit with God's desires. In fact, between verses four and verse 10, six times here he'll use the word practice. Another three times he'll use this little phrase, keeps on, all of it referring to a lifestyle. You cannot live a lifestyle that is completely apart from your faith and be a believer. That's what he's saying. This isn't a bad decision. This is the normal practice of your life. This is how we live. Now, the second thing he's going to tell us here is in verses 5 and 6, and that that is why sin doesn't fit with following Christ. Look at verse 5. He says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Verse 6, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So here in verse 5, he says that he has appeared to take away sins. By the way, that's not the first time you'd ever hear that in the scriptures. That's like the key truth of the Bible. In Isaiah chapter 53, we'll have it up on the board here. It reminds us here a little bit about what he's going to do. It tells us here, in fact, you know what? Let's turn over in our Bibles to this. This is an important spot. Isaiah 53 Right before Jeremiah, pretty big book. Isaiah 53, look at verse five. It tells us, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All of us, verse 6, like sheep, have gone astray. In other words, every single one of us is a sinner. We have turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him, his son, the iniquity of us all. Verse 12. It says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, and yet he bore the sin of many which makes intercession for the transgressors. In other words, he came to take our sins. He came, that's the chief thing. Jesus appeared, back in 1 John, verse 5, tells us he appeared to take away sins. This is not a new concept. The beginning of John's gospel, you know, tells the story about John the Baptist being in the waters of the Jordan, baptizing people. He sees Jesus and his disciples walking by, and in John chapter 1, verse 29, he looks up and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, when we talk about the fact that Jesus came and died to take away sin, this is not just some like religious story or some symbolism to make us feel like this is special. It should challenge us. How can I 
love and practice. What Jesus humbled himself and came and died to set me free from. That's a big deal. My sophomore year in high school, I got challenged with this. I was a newish believer. And I, you know, I had this whole group of friends that were not believers and they were outside of the church. And, and so there was this time you know, where I just kind of kept, I would gravitate back to them. And so every weekend I seemingly blew it. And then I would feel really guilty and I would go with my new friends that I'd just become a, you know, a Christian and I'd go on a Wednesday night and I'd repent. And then every weekend I'd go back and mess up again and then I'd go repent until one day I'm standing in the hallway at my high school and there's just literally students everywhere around. I'm standing at my my locker and this guy that was a coach at our high school who happened to be a really strong Christian walks up and grabs me by the shirt in front of everybody in front of hundreds of students and he says hey hey Wade either be a Christian or not because you're an embarrassment I'm going to be honest with you that's one of the most important events in my whole life I needed that challenged. I needed to be called out at that point and face the fact that the lifestyle, the very lifestyle that I was living did not fit with the faith that I was proclaiming. It didn't work. Go back to verse six here in 1 John. 1 John says, no one then who abides in him The word abides here is John's word for fellowship. No one who has fellowship with him or says they have fellowship with him, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. In other words, you cannot continue to live a lifestyle that Jesus died to set you free from. In fact, he even takes it a step further. Go back to verse six again. He says, no one who bites in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now he's gonna even take it up a level further because now he's gonna say it's impossible to have a relationship with him, to be saved by him, to really know him and to keep on living a lifestyle that I know is wrong. Now I don't want you to get confused here. John is not saying that the Christians don't sin. Of course Christians sin. I mean, if you go back to first, you know, to the very first chapter in chapter one in verse eight, he says, if, if you say you don't have any sin, you're lying. You're making God out of it to even be a liar. Of course, Christians sin. And then he comes back in the next verse in verse nine, he says, look, all you have to do is go to the Father and he's faithful, he will forgive you. And by the way, you get to chapter two, verse one, and he says, look, you've got an advocate with the Father. You've got someone that will go to the Father for you. And so, yes, Christians sin, but when we sin, it's not just no big deal. It ought to be troubling. Go, keep your finger here in 1 John. Go over to Romans chapter 7 for a second. Romans chapter 7. Paul, the primary writer of the New Testament, writes this in Romans 7, verse 15. He says, I do not understand my own actions. In other words, I don't know, what I, why do I keep doing this? I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Do you ever feel like that? I shouldn't be doing this. This is not what I'm supposed to do. 
Later on in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, he says, we're supposed to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And so see, we don't keep on practicing as a lifestyle the very thing that Jesus came and died to set me free from. This was a real shock to the people in probably in Ephesus and all through Asia Minor when he said that. And it may be a shock to us. Now, there's a third thing that he tells us here in verses 7 and 8, and that is why sin is a big deal. Look at verses 7. He says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Don't let anybody deceive you. Don't let them lie to you. Don't let them trick you. The Gnostics here, who he's really writing about, were actually pretty smart people. They were very philosophical, very logical, but they weren't biblical. They would say things like, you know, you could be righteous, and you don't even have to bother to be righteous. You don't have to live righteously. It doesn't work like that. I mean, let's just be logical for a second, even with the other side, God's point of view, okay? If God is a sinless God, and if he sent his son, his only son, with a purpose of coming to remove sin so you could be free from it, then is God okay with your sin? No. He's not. Keep going. Look at verse 8. He says, whoever makes a practice, that's the lifestyle again, Whoever makes a lifestyle of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So basically he says, if you're living a godless life, you're likely godless. And then in the second part of that, he says, sin is of the devil. Now this is really kind of an important point. You know, many of you have been through some of those uh, the classes, the apologetic classes that we offer and stuff like that, because people will ask from time to time, if God created everything, does that mean he created sin? Because then they have a reason to blame, right? Well, the answer is no. What God did was God created the freedom that Lucifer, and in some ways, maybe you and I in some ways, enjoyed to turn away from God. See, I think the Bible is really clear here about where sin came from, Go back over to the left to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Look at verse 44. John here writes and he says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. It started with him. I mean, if you think back for a second, in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 14, what Isaiah does is he lists God speaking about Satan. And in verses 12 through 14, he says this, he says, how you, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How were you were cut down to the ground who laid the nations low? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. 
I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Do you realize there that Satan five times says, I will, in opposition to God? Obviously, it's egotistical. Obviously, it's prideful. But even more so than that, it was rebellious. See, Satan wanted to do it his own way. And I'll be honest with you, I'm capable of doing the same thing. I'm capable of living the way I want to live, the way that makes my flesh happy. That's possible. I mean, this is one of the greatest struggles we have. I mean, spiritually, am I going to live my way or am I going to do it God's way? Because if self-determining my life leads me to practice the things that Jesus came and died to take away, then I am replicating the very first sin all over again. Did you catch that? If self-determining my life, me making all the decisions in my life, how I'm going to live and what I'm going to do, if that leads me to practice the things that Jesus came and died to take them away from me, then I am replicating the very first sin I am rebuilding. So what John is saying here is if I continue to practice what I know I should not be doing, it's lawlessness, it's rebellion. And go back to verse eight again. Look at the second part here. He says in here, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That word destroyed there is the word loosed. It gives the idea that we were bound up in sin's chains and you couldn't do anything else. I mean, you were, you were just tied to it and Jesus came and he set us free from that. Keep your finger here and go back over to Romans chapter six. By the way, you can tell how important the book of Romans is by how many times we have to keep going back to it, right? Romans chapter six, look at verse six. Again, Paul writes and he says these words, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. In other words, when you and I come to have a faith in Jesus Christ, you know, that, that, that salvation that God brings, God's grace and his power, it takes away that sense of being enslaved to sin. He gives us brand new life, verse seven. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 14, for sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So in other words, when you and I make this decision to come to faith in Jesus Christ because God calls us into his kingdom, we get set free from the power of sin and from the penalty of sin at that moment. You're not a slave to it. You used to have to do these things. You don't have to do it anymore. You do it because you choose to. See, Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection accomplished more than you could possibly imagine. Why would I ever go back to the old life? And by the way, his death and coming, it came at great cost. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 tells us this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures. Jesus didn't just come and go, wow, what a great group of people. All of you be forgiven. He came and paid the ultimate sacrifice. He died on the cross so that you and I do not have to be enslaved to sin any longer. 
1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, tell us again of the extent of this. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He doesn't come and he pays some sacrifice for you. He paid the sacrifice for you. He came and shed his blood for us so that you and I, I want to make sure you catch this, he shed his blood so that you and I would not have to be slaves to sin any longer. On top of that, so that you wouldn't choose to keep being a slave to sin. Now, there's a final thing he's going to tell us here. In verses 9 and 10, he's going to tell us what our lifestyle says about us. Look at verse 9. He says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seeds abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. The reason why you and I change is because when God makes this decision to save us, he puts his Holy Spirit inside of us to empower us, to tell us it's wrong, to lead us, to guide us, to give us the strength to say no. New birth in my life changes things inside of me. Let me take your Bible and go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 for a second. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 17. Paul writes and he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, stop, look up for a second. If you've made a decision to follow Christ, if you've asked Christ to forgive you and you've asked Christ to come into your life, you are in Christ. That's what that means. But now he's going to explain what it's going to mean for your life. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The old was when you were enslaved to sin. And behold, the new has come. In other words, you don't have to do those things anymore. Look at verse 10. Back in 1 John 3, he says, And by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. He says, as a result of the fact that you've got God's seed living inside of you, the spirit living inside of you, it becomes evident who the children of God are. Well, how? They practice righteousness, and they love the other believers. You see, how we live and who we love become a sign of faith. Our lineage becomes evident. It's obvious. And that that brings up some important questions. If people can't tell that I'm a believer by looking at the people that I love or by looking at how I live my life, then I must not be living the way he's asking me to live. If it's confusing, it's not because of him. See, this isn't just about the words that we say. There were a whole group of people there in Asia Minor that were saying that they believed in Jesus. But their life didn't show anything like that. Our actions here are much louder than words. 
The truth is, is that if you and I have come into this relationship with Jesus Christ and the old's passed away, he's put his spirit inside of us, but my spiritual DNA at this point then is that I am a believer in Jesus Christ. The question is, does anybody know it? Can anybody see it? This morning is a perfect morning for this. We're going to be taking communion. In fact, I'm going to ask the people that are going to serve us communion, if you'd go ahead and begin to uh, get the elements there, and they're going to be bringing them around, and they're just going to start passing them out. Now, here's what I'd like to ask you to do. Just take the cup. There's going to be two cups, one inside of the other. One has a little piece of bread. The other one has juice. And would you hold that? And then we'll take that again together. But here's the thing. When Paul wrote about communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he gave us a very stern warning. Because in in 1 Corinthians 11, in verses 27 and 28, he said, I want you to examine yourselves. Examine yourself. Look at the life that you're living. My question would be is, what are you practicing? What does your lifestyle say about you? Are you practicing what your spiritual DNA really is? That you have Christ in your life and you're different? Are you practicing what you used to do when you were enslaved to it? The point that, the reason why he even says that is he's expecting that you will stop and you will repent. You will ask God to forgive you and you will turn around and you will live differently. So just take the cups hold them, we'll come back together in a minute and take them together. Verse 23 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he gave it thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25. It says, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance for me of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I want to encourage you that at the end of this worship service, after it's all over, there will be a group of people that will be down here. If you need to change your life and you'd love to have someone pray with you, there are people that see that as their ministry. Don't be afraid to come and pray with them. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for sending your son to come and die to set me free. May, I lo- may my love for the Son dictate the lifestyle that I will lead and not the world. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all.